The year 1953, a plane touches down at Smithy's Airport in Sydney. On board is an American named Lee Gordon. The Australian music scene will never be the same again. From then until now, these are the stories. G'day, g'day, this is Sheldon the Kangaroo Kid and you're listening to the All Australian Music Stories. This episode is on the band The Rajas. Originally as a band in the late 50s and early 60s, they had found success as Dig Richards and the RJs and they are one of the most popular bands in Australia. However, after Dig went solo and became Digby Richards, the RJs changed their name to The Rajas and it was the start of an amazing rock and roll journey. Remember, this is in the 1960s, long before social media. However, their fame erupted overnight, literally overnight. And the Rajas became one of the biggest bands in Australia. Some would even call them the Australian Beatles. Their journey is an amazing story from hanging out with the likes of the BGs, the Seekers, Johnny O'Keefe. And they're also there to help kickstart the international career of Olivia Newton-John. As a band, they may not be a household name, but their story deserves to be told. I speak with drummer and vocalist Leon Isaacson, and this episode is part three of my chat with Leon. If you haven't heard part one and two, I suggest you go back and have a listen on Dig Richards and the RJs and the Digby Richards solo career. This episode will make a hell of a lot more sense to you if you do. I hope you'll enjoy listening to the career of the Rajas. Yes, I was a fool for you. 
It's 1962 and rock and roll's popularity is in decline. The Australian music landscape is changing. Once the domain of bands, such as groups such as the DJs, the Rebels, the Devils, all their lead singers go solo, and unfortunately for the RJs, Dig Richards goes solo as well. However, you guys continue to work in the studios as the uh, festival's house band. Yeah, we did. And uh, what happened, I think, in, in about 63... A lot of surf music came out, and that saved just for a while because we we started working in a pub, at Manly Pacific, you know, doing sort of surf songs. Yep. So that saved our bacon until later on when the RJs then uh, became the Rajas. So you were when you're at the Manly Pacific, you were still performing as the RJs. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, in '63 we were, and then we came back in '64 as the Rajas. And what brought the name change about? What had happened was in '63 we had a break from the uh, the Manly Pacific, and we went down and did a, a few months in Cooma, of all places. I think it was a Snowy Mountains Hotel, and the band was uh, John Hayton. Mike Lawler, me, and uh, Sandy Davis, because we needed, like, vocal contact, ten, uh, you know, since Dig went. And Sandy played guitar and sang. So uh, so John had to swallow his pride and actually get a guitar player in the band. <laughs> but, but Sandy could sing and he could sell songs and, uh, you know, it, it helped us a lot because we had, it was mostly vocal content that we had to do. And we, we got all that happening in um, at the Manly Pacific. They loved us, you know. And um, when we took the break down to Takuma, oh, we had a lot of trouble with Sandy. Poor old Sandy, I, I don't know. And Sandy had a thing about, said, oh, if Mike Lawler doesn't go, I'm going. So we said, okay, see you later, Sandy, you know. And we uh, we rang up Lindsay King, who, who'd been working with the DJs, playing bass. We said, so uh, do you want to join the band? He said, oh, great. He said, what, did you sack Michael on the bass? And I said, no, we sacked Sandy, so you got to play guitar. And he went, oh, great. So we went out and bought a, one of those uh, dog dick pink uh, fenders, Nosmo. Yeah, his name, his name was Lindsay King. It, uh, we called him Nosmo, Nosmo King, you know. That was the joke. But anyway. Did he smoke No. Oh, yeah, he did. He did <laughs> smoke, but he reckons uh, his name was up. In lights, more in more places than anybody. Yeah, you know? that's true. So he said, "There's my name again, Nosmo King." So Nosmo came down. Nosmo was f- really funny, you know, and he added a lot to the to the band. And, uh, and being an ex um, member of the DJs, he's obviously very experienced. Oh yeah, and he he'd played in the RJs before, you know, uh, when we had some horrible gig at the uh, Civic Hotel. 
well, that must have been 63, I think, before we went to the can uh, at Manly Pacific. And, uh, yeah, so Norsmo was, he was a great addition to the band. And while we were down there, Johnny O'Keefe wanted us to do uh, a sing, sing, sing. We came back and, uh, oh, I forget how it all, it all came about, but we we decided that we, we'd put down some tracks at festival and uh, and we put down some Beatle tracks just as a demo. And they said, oh, great, you know any more Beatles songs? I said, yeah, of course, because the Beatles were perfect, same lineup as us. So we put them all down and they, they put these things out, uh, the Daily Telegraph, and suddenly... It was the Rajas doing Beatlemania and suddenly we were on the front page of, of the Sunday Mirror and, and the Sunday, you know, whatever. And, um, yeah, suddenly we needed a new name when we went to festival and we were there with O'Keefe. So when you've done these Beatles songs, when you recorded these Beatles songs, you're still the RJs in your own mind in, in the yeah, studio. Yeah, yeah, we're in the studio and, and, and O'Keefe said, oh, now you, well, you've got to change the name, you know, and Dig said, Oh, he changed the name. And I said something about, oh, well, it should sound something similar like the, the Rajas, the Rajas. Well, and somebody said the Rajas. And, and O'Keefe said, oh, that's a great name. He said, I'll put you on the show and we'll have elephants and, and uh, dancing girls and, you know, satin cushions. And, <laughs> and most of all, turbans. And turbans. And, yeah, we went, oh, okay. So he said, anyway, anyway, I want you to do some Beatles songs on the show. So so we did three Beatles songs and we did the show and it, it, it was a big success. And O'Keefe said, look, I haven't got a touring band anymore, you know, because since I'm doing the TV show at ATN, so uh, you could be the band because this would be great for me, he said, because you guys do vocal backing and everything. So then we uh, we went down back to the Manly Pacific, but then we became... Johnny O'Keefe's band, you know, and every now and again we'd have a rehearsal and Jock would just turn up at the Manly Pacific and get up and sing, you know, and people would look around and say, oh, I think I know, he's got a familiar face, that bloke. <laughs> and that's that's how we started with Jock, in, in, that was in 64. Who was doing the main vocals for the Rajas? Me and John, John Hayden. So there's a great clip on YouTube with you guys with the, the turban headwear and headdress on and... JOK has actually come in and he didn't leave you on their own. He, 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 if, if you guys were looking silly, he was looking silly as well because he put it on himself. I know. Well, that's what we said. We're not going to wear these bloody turbans, John, you know. And he said, oh, he said, oh, it's all right. I'll, I'll wear one too. And we said, yeah, we'll only wear them if you do. Okay. So <laughs> you cornered him. Yeah, yeah, we cornered him. And he said, oh, okay. So he came out and, and he sang, I saw her standing there or something like that. Yeah, so that was that was an embarrassing moment that stayed with us for quite a while. Like, where's your bloody turbans? <laughs> well, there's another scene in the uh, miniseries Shout where it sort of shows him in his manic state and there's there's a moment where, where Johnny O'Keefe yells out uh, to Peter Page, we need some elephants, we need some elephants to walk in on the set. So I'm assuming that's when the Rajas were playing or maybe he had a, a pinch yeah, of elephants. Well, well, yeah, he had a thing about elephants, but, uh, you know. So when we went on to but there's the Rajas that we, we had the turbans but we didn't have any we didn't have any elephants. Yeah, he he'd, he'd always he'd get stuck with with things sometimes, you know. And he go, oh, we'll do this, we'll do that, you know, because he didn't care. And 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 usually all the things that Johnny O'Keefe came up with were all, always 
good, you know. You know, he had some crazy ideas, but. But he was a great showman and a great entertainer. Yeah, but you went along with it because Jock knew how to do it. And, and when we started doing live shows with him, it was just magic, you know. Uh, he would just brain them. Yeah. We sort of did a few tours while we were at the can. We went over to Western Australia and uh, uh, and did a whole big tour there. And, and they had a big fleet of Jaguars for us. And, and Jock just, just brained them everywhere, everywhere he went. He was, it was great fun to tour with, you know. And as such a high energy performer and, and a, I suppose, a manic rock and roller, for you, the drummer, it must have been great to be able to throw that energy towards him and he would have been bouncing it back. Oh, like, yeah. Look, he just loved the band. He, he just loved the band. And also, in a way, Jock was a bit of a loner and suddenly he had four mates to, to hang out with, you know. And he knew your motives were were music as well. You know? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so he, I mean, he'd come around some days, and we were supposed to do a rehearsal, and we ended up playing with scale electrics cars all day or something. You know, just, and he'd come over to the can when we were there, and he'd hang out, and he, he'd even arrange gigs for us. You know, we arranged just for us to go to New Zealand just as the Rajas, because they uh, they wanted it. At the Australia's Beatles type band over there, and uh, Jock took care of all the arrangements, and we just kept doing TV shows. And as well as that, we'd back all the other people that were rock and rollers that were on, you know, the Johnny Akeff show on, on Channel 7. Um, so when we did some of those first tours with John, suddenly he wanted to have a bit of a new image because of the TV show, so he'd have the big suits, and he, and he sent us to Andy Ellis to all to get suits and everything. And so we used to say, John, what happened to the wild one, you know? Now you've become the mild one, you know, because he'd have the hands behind his back and in all these tours we'd have to meet the mayor and everything, so he had to make out that he wasn't the wild one. But he still was on, on stage anyway. But He couldn't help himself? No, I know, but he was just doing, trying that new image, I think, just to say, oh, look, you know, um, I can wear suits and proper suits and all that stuff. Because in the early 60s, as we are saying, the, the image of rock and roll was changing. So guys like Dig, Johnny Reb, Johnny O'Keefe, everybody was trying to maybe have a nice guy image and not, you know, they knock the edges off themselves sort of thing. But I, deep down, they're still rockers. They couldn't, yeah, couldn't help themselves. Well, I know. Well, uh, well that, that new image thing was sort of brought about with the television, you know, they were saying, oh, John, you know, you, you play to the mums and dads now, so, so you know, you can't just do rock rock songs and rock songs like you got to make out. And John would come on and sing some sleep, you know, jazz thing or uh, or he'd get us all to sing sing big uh, numbers all, to, all together, you show know. Show tunes and things Show like that, yeah. tunes and, yes, sir, that's my baby and all these stupid things and sort of dancing. Uh, because he was just trying to get away from, like, the original show he had, Six O'Clock Rock, was just bang, it was all rock songs. But even then they had to have the other band playing, uh, you know, the jazz and the and the standards and stuff. And uh, he was trying to do it, do the same with, uh, with the Johnny O'Keefe show because some, sometimes you see some of those numbers again and you know, they're pretty laughable. But at the time, it was it was what was happening at the time, I suppose. So it all just sort yeah, of yeah. He was trying to move with the times, you know. And I mean, uh, he was even saying, "Oh, look, I can't have all these long-haired people on 
on the TV show, all the mums and dads would complain. We said, no, John, you got to go with it, you know, and all that stuff. Like, Because he copped a bit of backlash for that too, didn't he? Oh, yeah, I know, but it was silly. I mean, and, and then I think he, he gave in to that. There were people like, you know, Billy Thorpe and the, and, and the Easy Beats and all these people, you know, and, and he thought they might look too scruffy. <laughs> and we, we even came back from a holiday and, and three of the guys in the band had wore beards and he'd go, no, no, you can't wear beards, oh, no. And do you think this was pressure coming from the, the big TV execs from yeah, the top down yeah. to him? Yep. Yeah, there was a lot of pressure. And all it was is, is you, you know, you aim to try and please everybody and you think these TV execs probably know what they're doing, but uh, half the time they didn't know what they were doing either. And you rock the boat and they rip your contract up in a heartbeat and bring somebody else in too. Oh, yeah, so I, I know. Suppose you've got yeah. To- so he, so I mean, you know, he was he was hanging on to all the, all the TV stuff then, and that kept going for quite a while. And, and then Jock started having all these nervous breakdowns because of it. I think, you know, because of all the pressure, and he'd be taking pills, he'd be taking uppers and downers, and downers and uppers, and you know, uh, and all that stuff because he'd uh, been introduced to all that when he first had the accident. You know. And these are pills doctors were giving him, prescribing him. Yeah, yeah. Mostly, I'm assuming. Prescription drugs and all that. And so all that that pressure. And then suddenly, bang, we'd we'd have all these things planned to do. And then Jock would suddenly have a nervous breakdown or something and he'd be in hospital. But then a month month later, I'd get a call, you know, Leon, Johnny O'Keefe. I go, oh, John, are you all right? You know, he said, of course I am. Yeah, I was all right. I just needed a rest. Yeah. Like, I'd known Jock ever since I started, oh, before I started with Dig. With Ray Hoff. Yeah, with Ray Hoff, yep. you know, you know, because uh, Jock would ring up and say, yeah, we want to put Ray Hoff on, on Six O'Clock Rock. And I said, what about the band? Oh, no, you can't bring the band. <laughs> he said, the DJs will back him. But he said, you better come along and tell them how to play it. So you guys, as now the Rajars, well, you, you weren't the Rajars yet, but you're, you're in the studio and you're laying down these Beatle tracks for, for Six O'Clock Rock. As you said, there was a newspaper executive or somebody in the studios who went, hey, we'll, we'll put that out. So you, you guys, how many Beatles tracks did you lay down? Can you remember? Uh, I think we laid down about four or five, but they picked, or maybe it was six, because they brought out an extended play. How many tracks did that? They normally had four, but maybe there were six, I don't know, because they compressed it a bit and the actual sound came out was pretty naff because, uh, I, I don't know, when, when they compressed the tracks or something. I remember when we first heard it back off the thing, we were pretty disappointed because it sounded pretty good in the studio and we were only doing it for a, a TV show anyway, so we didn't spend much time on it we just flogged them out and the guy from the daily mirror or the telegraph uh, was it the mirror um was it the sunday mirror yeah it was the sunday mirror yeah yeah he said oh this is great you know he said and we'd gone away on a tour with uh the deltones and lucky star and dig and then suddenly halfway through the tour the record came out yeah, the Rajas. And it was given out free with the paper. So if you bought the paper, you got the record. So. Yeah, yeah. And we'd gone away on this tour with Bill Watson had advertised us as the Brumbies. And, so you've and, gone from the Rajas to the Brumbies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and we're, do, we're doing the tour and we, we'd come out and say, look, uh, sorry, the Brumbies couldn't make it, you know, but you've got the Rajas. And then I'll go, we want the Brumbies. The Brumbies. <laughs> So when when suddenly all the, suddenly we became famous overnight, you know. So from then on, it was like, yeah, 
back of the Brumbies, we were at the Rage House. You're at a hiding to nothing covering a classic Beatles song like I Want to Hold Your Hand, but I think the Rajas do a very admirable job. Here they are, the Rajas. You guys didn't realise the exposure we were going to get. Did you even forget about that you'd recorded this or yeah, the papers yeah, we were did. going to do it? Yeah, we forgot all about it. We went away on this tour that went went for about a month, you know, with, with the delis and Dig and everything and, and Lucky, and we'd forgotten all about it. And then suddenly we hit the front page and then suddenly we were more famous than anybody on the show. People were able to get their fix of the Beatles through the Rajas. They could go and get this um, LP, or I'm sorry, not an LP, like a little 45 or yeah. the extended play through the newspaper. So everybody had it. It was being played everywhere, and you guys were all of a sudden, you were stars again. Yeah, but we were still, also, we were stuck with, you know, we, we were a poor man's Beatles, you know, and, and we were stuck with it. So we had to do the Beatles no matter, no matter what. Even with Johnny O'Keefe, we'd go on tour and everyone would go, well, you want the Beatles? And Jock would say, well, you got them. That's my band. One, two, three, four. Well, she was just 17. Do you know what I mean? And the way she looked was way beyond compare. So how could I dance with another
You know, the whole Beatle era was just starting to go up and up and up. Well, you gave the Australians their fix of Beatlemania before Beatlemania was able to hit our shores. Yeah, 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 we were doing all that. I mean, we, we started doing that at the Manly Pacific, even when we were the Rajas. We, we were doing From Me To You and all the, the Please Please Me and a few of those early ones that came out and Love Me Do because it just suited the band. And at that time, did you... Did you realise the Beatles were going to be the Beatles or they were just the next hottest thing or there was something special about them? Well, I, I don't think anybody predicted that they were going to be as big as, as all that, you know, and if they were going to be bigger or how long it would last, you know, because with all these things, some, some people you know, have a big rise to stardom and it lasts for six months and, and then they're back to being nobody again. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That happened plenty of times. But we were able to just keep changing ourselves all the time. You know, I felt sorry when you're a lead singer and you've got nothing else to sell but yourself. But with a band, we could pretend to be anything, you know, and we could play anything. So you could change, in in a set, you could change from a rock tune to a ballad. To yeah, a- yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, you know, I used to feel sorry for some of the, the lead singers that were stuck with their own persona, you know, and... And they'd have to do the same songs all the time, but we could we could do anything. In fact, we prided ourselves on the fact that we could do anything. But we were doing things in four part harmony sometimes. When you know the Beatles really only ever used three, we we had four singers, so so it was great. And even Michael could play the mouth organ with one hand and play the bass with the other. Okay, well, <laughs> here's the Rajah's version of "Roll Over Beethoven." So there's a famous photograph of you guys on the front page. So when the, this record comes out, it's 
as we said, is given away on, on the Sunday paper. So every kid's harassing their parents. You've got to buy the Sunday Mirror. Did we say it was the Sunday Mirror? I think yeah, the it. Sunday Mirror. The Sunday yeah. Mirror. So they're saying you've got to buy it. And there's a great photo of you guys on the front page of the paper in your plastic beetle wigs. Did you realise this oh, was going to happen? Yeah, I know. Look, that was part of all the silly publicity that went on. We, we went in for photo shoots and they – Oh, put these on, yeah, and do all that. And, and we were thinking, oh, God, we're supposed to be a serious band, you know, <laughs> not not clones of the Beatles. And it was even Robert Idow, when we were recording those things, he said, you realise you guys are going to be the poor man's Beatles and you're going to be stuck with it. And no truer word was said, we, we were stuck. So it ended up being a bit of an albatross around your neck? Yeah, in a way it was, you know, because we'd put out, I mean, we'd go and do a, what was it, IMT, um, Graham Kennedy's show. He said, we want you to fly down and, and, and do the show. And I thought, oh, great, we'll be able to do our new record and everything. And they said, oh, no, no, we, we don't want you to do any of that. We, we want you to do some Beatles songs because we're going to have a Beatle haircut competition. <laughs> oh, no. So stuff like that used to happen. Well, as you're saying, you actually did your own records and the Rajas weren't just a Beatle cover band or a tribute act as they call them now. You guys were a band in your own right. And you released the single Kiss Me Now through the festival-owned lead-on label. Ladies and gentlemen, here's a young instrumental group who have suddenly become singers and who turn out a fine song with some group numbers. I'd like you to meet for the first time in Australia, the Rajas! Kiss me now, oh how I love you, kiss me now. The song did really well for the band and even charted in New Zealand. So did you guys think that the music was good enough that you might have been able to shift away from the Beatles or you, you were starting to feel that the Yeah, we were starting in? to feel like, like we could if, if we could just grab a, a decent song. I mean, you know, uh, something that suited us. We, we needed a, a good rock song. I, I remember Lonnie said, oh, look, come over and see Barry Gibb. He said he, he writes about 100 songs a week. 
and that they were good mates, and and we we'd worked with them before, you know. But they were they were only sort of kids. I tried to get them on at the Manly Pacific, but Robin and Morris were only about fourteen or something, you know. They weren't allowed in the joint. Yeah. Um, anyway, they were really interested in my home movies, and they wanted to check them out. So we went over. I went over with Lonnie and John to their place. I think they had a little house in Lakemba. So the twins were looking at all the movies and, and saying, you know, and I'm showing them how to do stop motion and all that. And in the meantime, Lonnie saying, look, have you got a song there for the band? Because at, the, at the time, we, we were more famous than the Beach Gees, I suppose. So you guys are the Beatles doing meeting the Bee Gees. Yeah, yeah, The Australian yeah. Beatles meeting the, meeting the Australian Bee Gees. And, and so, you know, so... Barry gave me a big reel-to-reel tape that had about a hundred songs on it, and I knew he went crazy. But when we were there, you know, he's playing me these songs. It's only words and words. And I go, no, nah, that's no good. But, you know, we need a good rock song, you know. And the lights all went out in mass. No, no, nah, that's no good. He said, well, he got frustrated. He said, well, tell me something, song off the top 40 that you like, and I'll write a song just like it. So we looked at it, and we went, well, Glad all over now. There's a good yeah feeling. I'm glad all over. He said, "All right." So he he went off in another room and started writing the song because he he churned it out in about you know, twenty minutes or whatever. And I'm off with um, Robin and Morris. Suddenly he comes back and he said, "Well, what about this one?" And he starts playing this thing that sounded like Glad all over, and, and the twins were jumping in doing harmonies, instant harmonies. And he said, "Yeah, yeah, that's that's really good." And then we forgot about it. You know, we just went home and then we got a gig somewhere else and we had to get a Kuma or something. And So you probably hit, knocked back a couple of million sellers that day. <laughs> yeah, I, I could really pick a hit, you know. <laughs> I could really pick a hit. I remember Johnny O'Keefe said, we were at his place at Castle Crag and he said, now have a listen to this, Leon. And he's going, gee, where's my ring? And he, he, I said, oh, it's not much of a rock and roll song, John. He said, you know, you sound like bloody Mario Lanza or something. And he said, oh, no, no, it'll be all right. And I went, oh, yeah. <laughs> and it turned out. It did all right as a song, didn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, I played a bit on that session. And that was before they, they bring in all, all the, they used to do it in layers. And and, uh, and that turned out to be a really big hit for oh, him. It's a beautiful song. You know? Yeah. Uh, but he sort of knew how to pick things, you know. He used to just pick songs out of the blue and we'd be playing them. And then suddenly you go, oh, yeah, this is really great. And he's lucky he didn't listen to you that day. No, no, no. It's lucky nobody ever listened to me about songs. You know, I'd say, oh, that's 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 horrible. You know, no, that's no good. Not good enough for us. We need a good rock and roll song. Yeah, sure, Leon. And with the Bee Gees, they are, they are actually a little bit dirty that you guys had to tag the Australian Beatles. Oh, I know, I know, I know, because we did a few uh, TV shows, and uh, you know, uh, with Jock and, uh, and Barry and the boys were there. And he said, what's this about you guys being Australia's Beatles? He said, we were singing yeah, 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 long before you and the, and the Beatles. We should be Australia's Beatles. And uh, if he if he thinks about it, thank God he uh, he didn't get stuck with it. <laughs> That's it. Yeah, I know, I know. Yeah, and do you it. have to pinch yourself sometimes to see that they become one of the, the greatest selling acts of all time? Yeah, it's just un- un- unbelievable. Oh, man, it's not like we always thought, you know, they were pretty talented. They were and Barry could just churn out the songs, but we we had a we had a contract with festival, and, and the Bee Gees had a contract with festival, and then come up to about sixty six, I think it was. Our contracts wasn't they weren't renewed, you know. Like we got the sack, 
Yeah, Festo they sucking couldn't, both yeah, they, yeah, the they, yeah, they, they couldn't do anything with the Bee Gees, couldn't do anything with the Rajas. So you're in good company that day. Yeah, yeah. so the so the Bee Gees gave up in disgust and and uh, and went to England. And uh, da at that stage, uh, Robin and Morris really didn't play anything much, you know, and uh, just Barry playing the guitar and everything. But they had the grounding of of what it means to do. TV shows and to, to do shows live and all that stuff. And uh, when they went over there, somebody just grabbed all of them and went, you beauty. And uh, Another Australian, Robert Stigwood. Yeah, yeah. manager and, yeah, a, yeah. an amazing ride that these guys have had. There, there's there been a few people like that. I remember that TV show I was talking about with, in, uh, with Graham Kennedy. We were the stars of this, this show, you know, the Beatle competition. God knows what else. And on the show were the Seekers. Wow. Yeah. But, they were, but they were just like a poor man's uh, Peter, Paul and Mary. Okay. And they just won a cruise or something to sit my cruise to England. And uh, and then as soon as they got there, look what happened. Another Australian act that took on the world and, and yeah, won. Took on the world and won. Yeah, they sure did. We're talking about the Rajas putting their own singles out and the next song released on Lead On is a single, Let Me Tell You About a Guy. Let me tell you about a guy, guy, guy who's stolen my baby. Let me tell you about a guy, guy, guy who's stolen my With a broken heart Yeah, she was the girl Who I adored She was the girl Who I lived for She was the girl She was the girl Who I gave my love to I gave my love to He's gone and left her with no Let me tell you about a guy, guy, guy who's stolen my baby. Let me tell you about a guy, guy, guy who's stolen my love. Let me tell you about a guy, guy, guy who's left her downhearted. Yeah, this guy has gone and left her with a broken heart. Yeah, she was the girl who I adore. She was the girl who I live for. She was the girl, she was the girl who I gave my love to. Let me tell you about a guy, guy, guy who's stolen my baby. Let me tell you about a guy, guy, guy who's stolen my love. Let me tell you about a guy, guy, guy who's left her downhearted. Yeah, the 
With O on the flip side. We tried to write our own songs and our standards were too high, you know. And so I wrote this crappy thing called O and Michael wrote another crappy one called Let Me Tell You About a Guy. And we just thought we'd test it out in the studio. First of all, we were happy with it and they released it, but, uh, you know. But you look at some of the... It wasn't going to go anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it wasn't a BG written song. No, no, no. We should have got Barry with all these millions of songs he, he, he gave me. Yeah. But if you look at uh, YouTube and you look, some of the comments that people leave for the songs of the Rajas, you guys made a bit of an impact for your little time that you, you were the Rajas. So, yeah, so those, those songs are still being played today on you know, community stations, on YouTube and things like that. So you thought it was a throwaway, but people are still listening to it and getting a kick from it. Well, yeah, that's pretty amazing. But, I mean, it was it was a pretty good band there for a while, you know. We, we, we knew how to do shows and stuff like that. You know, we'd go over to New Zealand and we'd kill them. But when we got to New Zealand, we found out, hey, there's some pretty good bands here, you know. we better clean up our act, you know, and, and what can we do that's different or something. Because one tour was with Ray Columbus. Is that yeah, right? yeah, yeah. We tour with Ray and then we tour with Max Merritt and the Medias. Well, there's another couple of yeah. some of some of the pioneers of New Zealand rock and roll, Ray Columbus and the Invaders and Max Merritt and the Medias. Yeah, well, and we thought, well, they've never seen an Australian band before, so why don't we do something outrageous so Nice man said, oh, look, so when we do a, John does a solo, I'll roll on the floor and kick me legs up and all that. And Michael said, I'll pull out the mouth organ and start playing. And we did all these things and then all go, oh, wow, these guys are really out there, aren't they? You know, like we never, if we had a rolled on the floor in Sydney, they all would have gone, what's wrong with these guys? Called you guys an ambulance or something. They <laughs> <laughs> call an ambulance. And it turned out, and after we'd gone down to Christchurch and come back, we, we came back and and Ray Columbus and the band, they're copying all the things that we did and they're lying on the floor. Because they were still in the um, singer with band, you know, and the band's got to look like serious and they don't do anything, but the lead singer sells it. Well, like Australia's a few years behind the UK and the US, New Zealand's a few years behind Australia. Yeah, but in lots of ways they were, they were ahead of us. Musician-wise, they were really good. You know, we were used to having pretty crappy bands in Australia, all the New Zealand guys, they could play. And they were really serious about it. And then these bands come to Australia and, and, and brain well, them. Well, we encourage them to. Uh, you know, I said, Max, you've got to come to Australia. Uh, I'll get you a job at the Manly Pacific. <laughs> I did too. And, uh, and the same with the, the Invaders, uh, just after we'd done the tour there. They come to Australia and got nothing to do with me, but they did get all the TV and stuff, and and they had a hit record. She's a mod. Was that a bit of encouragement from you guys, seeing you guys as the big Australian acts coming along and saying, "Hey, no, you guys are pretty good." Yeah, Keep yeah. At but, it. but I mean, you know, we we we, we didn't have any hit records that we could burst. And we're talking about before how you know you've you've passed over some good songs in your time and from a couple of BG hits. But well, another one you're just you're working as a transcriber um, and you transcribe Peter Allen's "I Still Call Australia Home." 
And apparently you, yeah. you didn't think much of that one at the time. No, either. no. Well, that shows you what I know too. I thought they're not going to go for this schmaltzy crap. You know, I was writing out because the, the publishers used to send me uh, the songs, you know, after they'd do them or a demo or whatever. And uh, and I'd have to transcribe them and then they'd make the cheap music, you know. So that, that, that was what I did for a, quite a while there, you know, because I used to write arrangements for acts and singers and whatever like and as well as that i'd be writing all these things for publishers so they'd send me the songs before they came out and i'd write them out yeah i still call australia home i thought oh nobody's gonna fall for this <laughs> they did yeah a song that's become a, a, an unofficial national anthem yeah. you're seeing this long before anybody had even Thought of this oh, as a song, yeah, well, you know? nobody even heard it because I, I, I got the first uh, track they sent to me uh, was, was Peter singing the, the lead on one side and then uh, the flip side they sent was Cole Lachlan playing, playing the saxophone lead, uh, just doing, well, all, doing all the melody. I wonder what happened to that track. That, that was Pretty weird. Cole used to be in the, in the, in the Delta. Yeah, well, the podcast we've had a chat with Cole and oh, did you? Yeah, and oh, he's oh, telling great. us he um he's in well outro he does the outro of the saxophone on on the one where Peter Allen does the vocal. Yeah, and they they thought oh well we'll just get you to do the vocal playing the saxophone on the flip side. So I think it was a bit of a throwaway. Is idea, that how yeah. it worked? Oh, I wondered why I got those two tracks. Yeah, right. Uh, wow. God, the things I used to write out. Oh, well, anyway, it kept me, kept me off the streets. <laughs> <laughs> Here's O, written by Leon. Oh, oh, it's all right, now you're going to be mine. Oh, oh, it's all right, and I'm feeling fine. Because you're going to stay mine. Don't you know?
saying before that with the the bgs and and jok that you guys you may not have been able to always pick a pick a hit song but there's a time there where they have a a tv talent quest and johnny o'keefe has the talent quest and he runs over to you guys and says who who will get who's the winner who do you guys think the winner and you guys ah the blonde chick pick the blonde chick ah pick the blonde chick yeah she was the best olivia Uh, Olivia newton john and we said well haven't they got any judges he said, no, no. He said, I'm the judge. So are you guys. Oh, are we? All right. Pick the blonde chick. <laughs> <laughs> Another career that's gone on, on to worldwide success. I know, I know. When you see the movie Grease on television, it must have give you a bit of a laugh to know that you've seen Olivia at the, the very At the, the very start, yeah, yeah. She won a Sitmar cruise to, uh, to England and there's another one. That was the the prize that you guys voted her into. Yeah, yeah. That was another one. It was introduced to the world and uh, and conquered it. You mentioned before you toured New Zealand with the Rajas. Yeah. You guys also, a major chapter of your career is you guys toured Vietnam. And with Lucky Star, and it was an extended tour, it must have been a, a shocking time or an eye-opening time for you guys to, to end up in a war zone playing for the Aussie troops. I know. Look, we, we'd just done another tour to New Zealand with Lonnie Lee, you know, and we'd just come back from that. And Lucky's manager, Bill Watson, said, uh, I'm going to send you boys to Vietnam with, with, uh, with Lucky. And John said, so where's Vietnam? And I said, oh, I don't know. I'll look it up in my old atlas, you know. <laughs> I said, I'm sure there's a war going on there somewhere, isn't there? He said, yeah, oh, yeah. So we had, we had to sign all these papers, you know, that virtually all said, if you get killed, you know, you, you can't sue us. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, so they packed us up in a, in, a, in a C-130, Hercules, and we flew from Sydney to Pierce. Then we had to fly around Indonesia because they would have shot us down if we were 30 miles close to them, and we went to Butterworth and... And then we flew from there into uh, into Saigon, and that was October 1965. Right, though, in the, the heart of it, the meat of it. Oh, yeah, well, you know, but uh, so we were the first band to ever go there, you know. Well, our Lucky went over in a, in a Boeing BOAC, I think, and we met up with him at, in Saigon, and away we went, and we did all these shows in Ben, no, the, all the troops were in Benoit then. And we did all these shows for the Australian trips in Benoit and the Americans and everything. And boy, that was an eye-opener, the whole thing, you know, wow. You know, because we always thought, of, you think about war being in black and white and suddenly it's in colour and then you're there. And you're seeing it. And they're shooting at you. <laughs> but we, no, we were so young, you know, we were only 21 or something and uh, you'd just think you're invincible and, and the whole thing was a bit of a laugh. So you nowadays you'd be thinking, oh God, I don't want to be here. But you, as you said, you thought you were invincible and you you were rock and rollers yeah. and you were there to entertain. Yeah, yeah. Well, we we had no axe to grind, so we weren't we didn't have a gun, any guns, but uh, 
But, I mean, I do think back at incidents where you think, well, God, I could have been easily killed there. Yep. That yeah. That happened with Kathy Wayne, yeah. Yeah, Kathy Wayne. Because uh, ended up, we ended up going back again with Lucky the following year. And then uh, in 68, I went with uh, Eden Kane. Remember Eden Kane? No, I don't know. Boys Cry? No. No? Oh, you're <laughs> too to, young. I'll have to have a bit of a look. Oh, you'll have to have a look for Eden Kane. He was great. Uh, he was kind of like Australia's answer to, uh, oh, England's answer to Dick Richards. You know? oh, so he's he's a, a pom, was he? Yeah, yeah, yep. yeah, yeah. He's a pom. Actually, he's born in India. He's born in the same place as Cliff Richard, I think. But uh, he was a wickedly handsome-looking guy, and now all the girls used to scream over him. And uh, I went with him and my old first piano player, Jimmy Taylor. And uh, Jim liked it so much, he went back again with with our old first singer Ray Hoff. And then he went back with uh, Kathy Wayne, and they went on that tour. And, and uh, boy, uh, you know, the, Jim said he was doing a, doing the show, and then uh, bang, somebody shot her while we were on stage. He said she fell back on his piano, and he thought she must have got an electric shock or something until she saw the blood in the back. Oh, awful. So that traumatised Jim. She was only Jim. 19 too, oh, wasn't she? no, yeah. she was a sweet little thing. We, even, we had her in the band, for God's sake, uh, with the Rajas. Okay. Playing at the Hume Hotel. That was another gig I'd rather forget about. But it, but it, but it, yeah, but it went for a couple of months. Then we needed a chick singer and uh, Kathy was great. Yeah, no, it's tragic. And yeah, it's another, unfortunately, another person that sort of disappeared from the, the history books, I suppose. The, the, the stories get lost and forgotten over time. Yeah, and, they do. But yeah, it's such a tragic, tragic story. And yeah, n- not a good one. And luckily, Lucky that didn't happen to you guys, you know. You guys sort of came out unscathed physically. Did Mentally, did it take a bit of a toll when you came back to Australia and you sort of went, wow, this just... Well, after, after we've been there for about, the first time, about three or four months, you know, you come back to Australia and you do suddenly feel this wave of relief that, that nobody's trying to shoot you. And the first time we had a backfire of a car, we're in, we're, the three of us were in a cab, and we all, we all hit the deck. Yeah. And the cab well, driver said, what's wrong with you guys? <laughs> so because that's what you did, you know. And we, and we got shot out a few times going through checkpoints and stuff like that. And there's probably no talk of post-traumatic stress disorder or any of that sort of stuff. It was, you know, pull your boots up and get on with it, boys, I suppose. Oh, yeah, it was. And, uh, I mean, look, it was hard enough for the soldiers and everything to, to live there. Let alone fight a war, you know, you're in the heat and you've got the food and in the jungle and God knows what else. It was pretty horrible. But at the time we thought, well, uh, naively, that we the Australians are doing a great job for the Vietnamese who would ask them to come over, you know, and, and the same with the Americans, you know. The Rajas Beetle Act saw you guys play a concert for the local Vietnamese, probably their first experience of rock and roll. What was that like as a gig? Oh, that was fabulous. That was really fabulous. We we ran into uh, at one of the clubs and messes we were playing at in Saigon. Uh, the Americans had all these different clubs. That we, we used to play a different one every night, just about. And one of the local promoters called Bang, the Vietnamese, he, uh, he said, oh, I have a job for you to play in theatre, you know, for uh, for all the locals. And so we said, yeah, okay, well, yeah, we'll, we'll do that. And suddenly he made this big sign, you know, and it said, number one enemy of Beetle in world, 
Raja from Uktalai, Australia. So that was a bit of a crack up. And when we did the show, it was like there wasn't a, a white person and in enemy them. meant banned. Yeah, did yeah. Stand for banned in Vietnamese. No, or? no, no, no. It said ban the rajas, and we went, "What's this? Ban the rajas?" And he said, "No, ah, oh, means banned, but there's built B A N." Okay, I've got you. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh no, it means means banned. Means number one enemy of beetle in world. <laughs> oh, I say, I gotcha. <laughs> and the joint was packed on. We did a couple of theaters, and there was no no white guys there or anything. So we had to hit them with a bit of Vietnamese or, you know, say hello and all that stuff. And they were fabulous. So that was just like playing to an old old Beatle crowd, you know. And was it reminiscent to when, because you were at the start of rock and roll in Australia in, in the late 50s, was it almost like that? All oh, of a yeah, it, it was all the screaming and everything. Oh, they, they, were, they were pretty uh, uh, subdued when we started. And then John came out with his big... Uh, speech he said king chow quivy which uh means hello everybody you know, or hello ladies and gentlemen it was very classy and they went oh, oh and then going woo and then he said now we'd like you all to clap along in this song but he said it in vietnamese but he said it wrong and and they all went oh, and they all just applauded he said oh, no but anyway we 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 got them all going and, and we finished with Oopoopa do and we got them all to sing and everything oh that that was just fabulous so that's probably why the Viet Cong left us alone. Okay. Because apparently they lived up the street from us. They had a headquarters there. <laughs> Again, that's that sort of gig is something that would just, as it, as it does, you know, you can just reminisce of, of that moment. How about the time when Bob Hope was due to perform for 4,500 American troops New Year's Eve 1965 on the 17-storey aircraft carrier, the USS Kitty Hawk? then one of the biggest ships in the world. Turns out Bob couldn't make it that night, so the Yanks, they substitute Bob Hope with the Rajas. Sounds crazy, yeah, but no, it's true. No, well, it was Lucky Star and Cheryl Blake and, and the Rajas, and uh, they flew us up to Danang and then flew us out into the Gulf of Tonkin, and then we're only on this little plane, you know, uh, and we had to land in the middle of the ocean, and you could see the whole fleet there, and the Kitty Hawk looked like a matchbox from the from the air, you know. We thought, how are we going to land on that? So we had to land on it, but and but you're sitting backwards and you you come down really quickly and and the hook grabs the plane and you go you pull up really fast. Anyway, they all come roaring out. There's five thousand men on the ship, like a floating city. I know it was, and they had ice cream machines. They had that, they, you name it. They had everything, you know, and they had to. Uh, we had to do two shows so that they could see us in shifts. And they had their own TV station, so as soon as we got there, we had to go and, uh, and do an interview to, to, you know, about these Australians. So they treated us like, as far as they were concerned, we were the Australian equivalent of Bob Hope. In the end, they probably got more entertainment from you guys than they probably would have got from Bob Hope. Oh, the Yanks loved us. Yeah, just the fact that we come from Australia, you know. They just loved Australians, even when we did the shows back in Saigon and, and uh, Benoit and Nui Dat and, and all those things. The Americans always thought the Australians were fabulous. They thought we were pretty good soldiers as well. Well, you guys luckily made it safely back into Australia. And when you return, you team up with uh, an American star piano player, Winifred Atwell, who's hugely successful at the time. She sold over 17 million albums worldwide. Again, that must have been different to playing in Vietnam and then again from backing Johnny O'Keefe. 
after we came back from Vietnam, after I came back the second time, I was about 68, I think, and I joined a band called The Chant, where they played all Blood, Sweat and Tears and uh, Chicago-type things. And I, I was just in my element. I was loving every minute of it. Even O'Keefe came down to see, see me one night and said, Liam, we've got to get the band back here. And I said, oh, we can't. John's in Hong Kong and Michael's gone gone to Dunk Island or something. <laughs> and where's Nosma? Oh, we don't know where Nosma is. So after I'd been playing in the chant uh, for a while, I, was, I started to play in another band with a guy called Jimmy Doyle. And he uh, just got hold of me one day and said, do, do, do you want to play with Winifred Atwell? And I thought, oh, I don't know. He said, look, come and see the show first. So he, you know, he said, it's not just all black and white rag and stuff. And I went and saw the show and, God, it went on and it, went, it, it was like a Led Zeppelin concert. And Jim's screwing away and she's doing about an hour encores and everything like that. So I joined the band and, uh, well, I couldn't, the money was unbelievable. She was the biggest star in, in any of the clubs. Yeah, no, she had an amazing career and, again, so have you and it's probably apt that you guys were, were playing together at some stage as well. Yeah, it was well, well, Jimmy Dore was in the band then and then he left, you know, he wanted to start a band called Airs Rock and then we got John Hayton into the band and we had Mike Lawler on bass. So it was just the bloody Rajas. <laughs> you couldn't get rid of them. No, I couldn't get rid of them, exactly. <laughs> Well, now you guys had an amazing career and, and thanks for talking to me about the Rajas and the next episode we'll, we'll be talking about the Mighty Guys and it's another moment of, of your career. Thanks, Leon. Okay, thanks. Thanks, Sheldon. Oh, cool. Let's finish this episode on the Rajas with a fantastic recording they did with Johnny O'Keefe, a re-recording of Shout.
Thanks for listening, and thanks to Leon for your time, and thanks to the Rajas for the music. If you enjoyed the episode, please click subscribe, and if you could leave a review or rating at iTunes, that would be unreal. If you have any guest requests or suggestions, you can email me at mycoast2 at bigpond.com. That's M-Y-C-O-A-S-T, the number two, at bigpond.com. Or like our Facebook page at All Australian Music Stories. I'd like to thank you again for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the episode as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you. And until next time, hail, hail, Australian rock and roll. Hi, this is Molly. You've just listened to a podcast brought to you by Marcos Promotions. Written, produced and presented by my dad, Sheldon the Kangaroo Kip. This is Molly Kidd saying to my good friend, Holly Kirsten, Hit it, girl!